The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from James Heal on Zach Goldsmith's Secret Shadow Cabinet, Leah McCarran on COVID in Canada, and Nicholas Farrell on the March of the Italian Wolves. First up, James Heal. The Zach Pack, the well-connected group quietly shaping Tory policy. Who let the dogs out? That's the subject of a Whitehall probe into the recent Afghanistan debacle. When the Taliban took Kabul, an estimated 1,200 people who qualified for evacuation to the UK had to be left behind. On the 28th of August, waiting Afghan families were left helpless on the ground as 173 cats and dogs were escorted past them into the airport and off to safety. The big question, on whose authority were animals put ahead of humans? And did any of this have the Prime Minister's backing? As ever with Johnsonian drama, the truth is elusive, but one minister seems closer to it than others. A parliamentary investigation unearthed an email from Zach Goldsmith's ministerial team within the Foreign Office, declaring that the PM had authorised the animal evacuation. The minister continues to deny responsibility. But it fits with messages from Trudy Harrison, the PM's then parliamentary private secretary, offering round-the-clock advice to those leading the animal rescue mission. So what does Goldsmith know? And what, if anything, does this tell us about the Johnson operation? The affair also raises questions about the role of Carrie Johnson, the Prime Minister's wife, Her friend, Dominic Dyer, an animal welfare campaigner, was involved in the Afghan pet rescue and boasted at the time he had, quote, no doubt that Carrie was in on this as well. It was instantly denied. Understandably so, it was an incendiary claim suggesting that Mrs Johnson was part of a powerful but informal group quietly shaping Tory policy and, in this case, military strategy. It's too ludicrous to be true, isn't it? Zach Goldsmith occupies his own stratum in the Tory hierarchy, He's stonkingly rich, he's probably worth more than half the cabinet members put together, and when he lost his seat to the Lib Dems in 2019 election, he was quickly ennobled and shifted his brief to the Lords. Here's a minister, not just at the Foreign Office, but at DEFRA, where he helped shape environmental policy and pursues his high-regulation agenda. To some free-trade ministers, he forms part of a protectionist axis of evil. He'd call it standards. Goldsmith, now 47, is the original Vote Blue, Go Green Tory, a millionaire who saw conservatism and environmentalism as bedfellows long before David Cameron started to champion the idea. Animal welfare has always been part of his conservationist package. Cameron helped him secure a place in Parliament, winning his home constituency of Richmond Park in 2010. But Goldsmith always had his own green agenda. Soon after taking his seat, he hired an ambitious young woman to help him forge his path, Carrie Simmons, now Mrs Johnson. When he resigned as a Tory MP in protest at the Heathrow expansion, and stood as an independent, it was controversial among Tories. But not with Carrie. She ran his 2017 re-election campaign, and among those out leafleting were her friends and future power brokers, Henry Newman and Josh Grimstone. As so often in politics, the friendship circle moved upwards together. Newman is now a senior advisor at number 10. Grimstone is Michael Gove's right-hand man. There is something of a Zack pack at the heart of government. Goldsmith's former council leader, Nick True, serves alongside him in the Lords, while True's daughter, Sophia, works at number 10, as does her fiancé, Declan Lyons. Then there's Ben Elliott, the impeccably connected nephew, Camilla Parker-Bowles, an incumbent Tory party co-chairman. 
When the Prime Minister's wife wanted some expensive new wallpaper for Number 10 in the now notorious redecoration, the establishment fixer was there to help. Elliot has spoken in the past about how his life has been intertwined with that of Goldsmith, a fellow old Etonian whom he has known since childhood. Elliot's parents were best friends with Lady Annabel Goldsmith. The boys started prep school together. Boris himself boasts a long-standing personal friendship with Zack, who let the Johnson family stay for free at his £25,000 a week holiday home in Marbella in October, just rewards for the man who gave him his peerage and first ministerial job. As with so much in Goldsmith's life, the ties are ancestral. His uncle Teddy was a friend to, and fellow eco-enthusiast of, Johnson's father Stanley. Many on the right fear that the environmental agenda clouds Johnson's focus. Goldsmith's fellow peer David Frost suggested last week that Number 10 is in hock to a woke green lobby. Prime Minister has previously been happy to indulge such a faction as part of his preference to run his administration as a series of competing courts. But now, mild in scandal, his hand may be forced to engage in some bloodletting. Some in Johnson's party want an overhaul on policy, with net zero initiatives sidelined until cost of living pressures are lifted. For Goldsmith, the trade-off is false. Vote blue, go green was never just a slogan for him. The peers' belief in conservation is sincere, hereditary, and central to his political mission. His tycoon father, Jimmy, nurtures his interest with a copy of Ancient Futures, a classic text on the dangers of globalisation. Zach later recalled, He scribbled in the cover, This will change your life. And it did. In the words of activist Derek Wall, quote, Green politics in Britain is branded with the Goldsmith logo and fertilised by Goldsmith seed funds. Zach's uncle, Teddy, helped fund The Ecologist, which Zach went on to edit, and The People Party, a forerunner to the modern green. Environmentalism and Euroscepticism were the two causes of Jimmy Goldsmith in his final years, and both were taken up by Zach with relish. For the past half century, the fortunes of the Goldsmiths have been linked to both the Aspinall and Burley clans. These three fabulously wealthy families have long been influential in the Conservative Party, with shared interests in animal welfare and greenery. Goldsmith's half-brother, Robin Burley, owns 5 Hartford Street, a fashionable political hangout. Until recently, Zach served as a trustee of the Aspinall Foundation, a conservation charity. His head of communications is Carrie Johnson. Ben Goldsmith has meanwhile served on the board of his brother Zach's department, DEFRA, since 2018, having turned the moribund Conservative Environment Network into a powerhouse over the past decade. Its ideas become Tory policy with striking speed. Some 120 MPs and peers are involved in the caucus, and it is something of a revolving door with DEFRA, where two of its alumni now work as special advisers. There is one final piece in this green machinery. When the pet rescue was activated, Dyer boasted, perhaps unwisely, about the involvement of a group of Tory activists. Quote, Carrie Johnson took the message forward, he said, not just through me, but through the Conservative Animal Welfare Foundation. This foundation has, as its patrons, both Zach Goldsmith and Mrs Johnson, as well as Stanley, the Prime Minister's omnipresent father. Was this group between them capable of giving a helping hand to the team behind the Afghan pet rescue? Absolutely. Did they? That's a question for the inquiry. Goldsmith, for his part, has said that he did not speak to the Prime Minister about the affair, but he wouldn't need to. He has far better connections. That was James Heal. Next, it's Leah McLaren. Two and a half centuries ago, in 2015, I had a video call with a Canadian friend who lives in my hometown of Toronto. As we spoke, she was putting together a Middle Eastern spice box for the Syrian refugee family she'd sponsored through her daughter's school, carefully printing out the labels in Arabic. Canada had recently committed to accepting 25,000 refugees compared to the UK's 10,000, which we both agreed was pretty stingy. I explained to her that although there were lots of charities and refugee initiatives here, the public attitude was different. 
Not xenophobic, I insisted, just less precious. None of the parents at my son's school, as far as I knew, were organizing welcoming committees for the Syrians, let alone putting together spice boxes. Also, I added, no one here would be calling them New Britons. What will you call them? She asked. Foreigners. My friend gasped and, and touched her throat. So do people call you a foreigner then? Yeah, I said, and it's fine. What? How? Because that's what I am. In Canada, the term immigrant has long been viewed as an outdated pejorative. Not as bad as the N-word or the C-word, which uttered in even the most high-minded public context will get you fired almost effective immediately, but definitely worse than other expletives. A few weeks later, when the plane load of Syrians, refugees, touched down on Canadian soil, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was waiting at the airport. He gave each of them a puffer jacket and a hug, baptizing them as new Canadians. I offer you this anecdote as evidence of the astonishing and earnest decency of most Canadians, a culture of people who by and large really do see immigrants not as suspicious foreigners, but newly arrived people looking for a better life. But also as a roundabout explanation for the alarming spectacle that is currently raging on Ottawa's Parliament Hill, where an enormous demonstration led by a convoy of angry truckers has gathered to protest COVID vaccine mandates. In much of Canada, regulations have been far more stringent than they have here in the UK, especially in the wake of Omicron. I don't mean Scotland and Wales stringent. I'm talking Christmas is cancelled again, and by the way, we don't know when your kids are going back to school stringent. In my home province of Ontario, for instance, vaccine passports are required to enter restaurants, gyms, event spaces, concerts and sporting events, and most crucially, for employment in many job sectors. As of late last year, hospitals, banks, insurers, school boards, and police, as well as many restaurants, event spaces, and government administrations, adopted mandatory vaccine policies for all employees. This stands in stark contrast to the UK, where no such regulations exist, and where government has just scrapped plans to have a similar policy for NHS workers because it would worsen already crisis-level labour shortage. In Canada, people have, by and large, willingly accepted the most recent regulations and mandates willingly, even enthusiastically. On the left, Trudeau's base, there has been an audible public clamoring for more and stricter rules. I personally know of several small business owners who have enacted their own vaccine mandate programs without legally being required to do so. And I also have a good number of friends who have kept their children out of school voluntarily post lockdown because they are frightened for their kids' safety, in spite of the fact that their children are vaccinated. Even if they weren't though, the health risks would be negligible, but try telling them that. From where I sit here in crazy land of Britain, the outraged truckers have an obvious point. Canadians have every right to be angry at the current regulations for the simple reason that they just don't make sense when weighed against the risk. But in Canada, the kingdom of reason, stating this obvious fact out loud is tantamount to committing a hate crime. It's not unlike calling a new Canadian an immigrant or a foreigner, even if technically that's what they are. Saying the truckers have a point is different from saying anti-vaxxers are rational. They aren't. But neither are progressives who clamor for more stringent rules when none are needed. 
Both groups are acting out of baseless fear, refusing to accept the facts. Right-wing extremists don't have a patent on magical thinking. Wingnut libertarians come in all shapes and sizes. The difference with the progressive kind is that in Canada, they're Trudeau's core voters. As the truckers and their supporters converged on the Capitol late last month, Trudeau dismissed them as a small fringe group who did not represent the majority of Canadians. He condemned their views as unacceptable and refused to meet with them. But by dismissing the truckers as racist nutjobs, the PM is stoking division. By any reasonable measure, Canada's COVID regulations are now hugely disproportionate to the risk. That's what many of the truckers are saying, and they're right. Yet to hear Trudeau talk, you'd think an American-style insurgency was brewing on Parliament Hill. Freedom of expression, assembly, and association are cornerstones of democracy, but Nazi symbolism, racist imagery, and desecration of war memorials are not, he declared this week, calling the protests an insult to memory and truth. From the outset, Canada's vaccine uptake has been overwhelmingly strong. At present, its rate is the highest of all G7 countries. Higher even than here in the UK, where the rollout has been hailed as a huge success. As in Britain, vaccine hesitancy and opposition rates in Canada remain significantly lower than in Russia, France, America, and even Germany. Canadians did not need to be coerced into getting their jabs in the same way that a significant majority did in France. So why all the extra lockdowns and school closures, the passports and restrictions to employment? It makes no sense until you consider to whom Justin Trudeau is signaling his virtue. The earnest, decent, fearful, magical thinking, progressive base. That was Leah McLaren. And finally, Nicholas Farrell. Are wolves stalking us on the school run? Dante's Beach, Ravenna. The other morning, my wife Carla was driving home after the school run in her battered old Renault traffic people carrier when through the fog she saw what looked like a wolf. It was ambling across the fields which were covered in white ice. The wolf was only about 50 metres away, so she pulled over and took a picture, which she texted to the local dog rescue centre. She then followed the animal as it continued on its way parallel to the road in the direction of our house. Eventually, it vanished in the fog about half a mile from our front door. Yes, it's a young wolf, said the man from the rescue centre when my wife spoke to him on the phone. You can tell it's a wolf from its tail, he explained. Apparently, wolves have tails that are convex and curved down, Dogs have concave tails that curve up. We have got some very interesting fauna on our stretch of the Italian coast. There are badgers, porcupines, green toads, whip snakes, marsh harriers, bee eaters, nightingales, various types of bat, and owls I call screech owls because of their horror-moving nocturnal cries. But wolves... When Carla told me that's what she'd seen, I must admit I was a little sceptical. She can get a bit carried away. For example, she is convinced, and has convinced our six children, that our house is full of poisonous aragni violini, violin spiders, 
which are so called because they have a pattern on their backs that looks like a violin. In our house, blood-curdling cries of Violino! Violino! Quick! Squash it! are common during the autumn spider season. But I do not believe they are violin spiders, mainly because the violin spider is also known as the brown recluse spider, which implies something solitary and secretive, whereas our violin spiders are all over the place and far from being reclusive. Nor have I really believed Carla when she has sworn to God, she is a devout Catholic who is not possessed by the devil as far as I can tell, that she has heard wolves howling at night. And nor did I necessarily believe her that one moonless summer evening when she told me she had been wading through the fields of waist-high corn on the way to the village on the coast when she felt something wolf-like brush past her in the pitch-black night. By the beginning of the 20th century, wolves had been hunted to virtual extinction in Western Europe, but in the past three decades they have made a remarkable comeback thanks largely to them being given protected status in the 1970s throughout the EU. They are now everywhere, even in Holland, where a wolf was seen for the first time in modern history in 2015. Italy was one of the few places in Western Europe where wolves had survived throughout, but by the mid-20th century there were fewer than a 100, and they were confined to a few isolated areas in the Apennines. No longer hunted down, they started to venture forth from their mountain redoubts. There are now about 3,000 of them in Italy and about 14,000 in Europe as a whole. Wolves, a source of fear and loathing but also admiration in our collective psyche, have played as central a role in Italian folklore as anywhere. Italian is full of wolf-based idioms such as in bocca al lupo, into the wolf's mouth, i.e. good luck, to which you must reply crepi lupo, may the wolf die, or more commonly crepi, or else you will be plagued by bad luck. My youngest son Giuseppe, age six, had to write in his exercise book for homework only yesterday, o una fame da lupi, I'm as hungry as a wolf. Real Italian wolves, however, I felt sure, are confined to the Apennines, which, at their nearest point, are about 25 miles from where we live, and not roaming around down here in the reclaimed swamplands of the Po Delta. Well, I was mistaken. Carla showed me her surprisingly clear photo of what was obviously a wolf. Wrong colour, grey, for an Alsatian, too big for a husky. What else could it possibly be but Canis lupus italicus, the Italian wolf or the Apennine wolf, a subspecies of the grey wolf, a descendant perhaps of the she-wolf that suckled the abandoned twin babies Romulus and Remus in a cave on the Palatine Hill before they grew up to found Rome. Indeed, the man from the rescue centre told Carla there is a family of wolves living in the pine forest that lines the coast a mile from our house. Noisy nudists and their numerous subspecies have stolen a long stretch of this beautiful beach from the silent majority, and they spend a lot of time looming in and out of this pine forest, stark naked. Would not such a sight terrify any wolf? Apparently not. 
Perhaps the wolves will one day frighten off the nudists, if only. We asked our nearest neighbours if they too have seen wolves. Yes, they see them every now and again, they said. And they texted us a photo of a dismembered fallow deer they had come across recently. Was a wolf to blame? They think so. All of which is a bit scary, even though wolves, so they say, steer well clear of humans, which is fortunate given that a single wolf can tear a cow to pieces. I've been trying to think of a suitable name for our house. How about Wolf Hall? We can always change it if one day we want to sell. I worry most, though, about our donkey Pepper, who, being a donkey, is not the happiest of animals at the best of times, especially since I imprisoned her behind an electric fence to stop her devouring anything I plant. She is particularly partial to grapevines, marigolds and rose bushes. No doubt wolves could polish her off in no time at all. But all I can do is wish poor Pepper good luck. In bocca al lupo. That was Nicholas Farrell. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.